and has volunteered and has volunteered as a doctor in Guatemala and Uganda. She is currently a faculty member at the College of Medicine in Blantyre, Malawi. Thank you so much, hi, Stan. Morgan, if you wanna say hi. Hi, I turned on my uh, video for just a minute. Um, mm -hmm. so that you all uh, can see me. And then uh, unfortunately my bandwidth is not very good, so I'll have to turn the, the video off. Um, but it's uh, nice to meet all of you. And uh, I've been hearing a lot about the work that you have been doing. So I'm very excited to talk to you about that. And um, we can chat about whatever interests you. Um, I can talk a little bit about um, the work that I did um, when I was in Haiti as a medical student um, and you know how I'm involved in breast cancer screening as an OBGYN um, in the States. And uh, I have uh, known Joy now for, um, let's see, I guess it's probably been um, a little over a year. Uh, and I work with the Resolution Project, which um, provided uh, Joy with some funding um, for the program. And uh, so I'm eager to hear about uh, what you all um, are interested in talking about tonight. Thank you, Morgan, for that introduction. So as you gave had. Uh, Morgan has been involved in uh, both breast and cervical cancer um, in different countries, right? Yes. Uh, um, so uh, we're going to ask um, Morgan questions that you guys have. I have a few questions with me. I'll start and then Bernice will go and then someone else will go and uh, I'll have a lot more questions to ask as well but this is going to be a very interactive session so you guys feel free to ask um, more than any questions that you have about uh, breast cancer so today let's stick to breast cancer but if at the end um, of our session we still have more time and if Morgan is available you can ask more about uh, cervical cancer so um, Morgan, uh, my first question to you is um, what did you see or, or observe as the major causes of uh, breast cancer while in Haiti or even right now when, when you're in Malawi? Is, are you able to compare the two countries or and how can you relate it to third world countries, like the experiences in other third world countries? So um, for me, primarily, um, my work with breast cancer has been in Haiti. And uh, so as an OBGYN in the United States, our role um, is, uh, is quite interesting and complicated. As OBGYNs, we tend to be the ones that initiate screening with women. Um, and so that tends to be with mammography or every woman um, that's over the age of 40 years old in the States gets regular mammography. And then um, as an OBGYN, we're also doing the clinical breast examination. 
Now, interestingly, um, you know, and, and we can talk a little bit about this um, if you're interested, but in the United States, we don't really recommend that patients do um, their own self-breast exams anymore, um, even though that is tremendously important um, in places like uh, Kenya and Haiti and, um, and Malawi. Um, so in the United States, the screening is primarily um, clinical breast exams by your OBGYN and uh, once a year, and then mammography. And then certainly if a woman has any concerns, uh, she comes to the doctor and gets screened um, more often and, and may require other imaging modalities. Um, so then, uh, as an OBGYN, we help the patients interpret the results of their mammograms and coordinate any further follow-up in terms of other imaging, um, in terms of biopsies. But if a woman has, um, a, a lesion in her breast that needs a biopsy as an OBGYN, in the States, we are not the ones that do that biopsy. Uh, and if she has a, um, a diagnosis of cancer, we're not the ones that do her surgery or coordinate um, her subsequent care. So um, typically in the States, a uh, woman would go to a radiologist, would be the one that does the biopsy. Uh, and then if that was positive for cancer, a woman would then go to a um, breast surgeon and then her subsequent um, treatment would be with a radiation oncologist and a medical oncologist to coordinate radiation and chemotherapy. So it's quite complicated um, in the States who does what role. Um, and it's, it's much simpler in Haiti. So, um, and so now as an OBGYN in, in Malawi, I'm not really involved um, in breast cancer. Um, although I am heavily involved in cervical cancer screening, uh, and as an OBGYN um, in the States, that's a big part of what I do every day. So um, unfortunately, Joy, I can't really comment on comparing breast cancer from Haiti to Malawi, um, because it's uh, different doctors that do that here. But I can say that compared to the United States, um, I think Haiti is very similar to the situation that um, we see in East Africa and other um, low-income countries and that um, breast cancer is prevalent at a much earlier age. And at the time of diagnosis, it's at a much more advanced stage. Um, and uh, there have been some studies um, back in the United States and Canada um, in the 1930s uh, in the United States and in the 1980s in Canada before um, screening modalities were widely available. And we know that at that time, um, the presentation of advanced cancers was around 35%. And um, it's certainly much, much higher um, we see in countries like Haiti, um, and that data often, um, mimics the data in East Africa. So we know that women get it younger 
Um, and, and Haiti, anecdotally, I can say that I, I uh, was involved in the care of many women who were in their 20s and 30s. Um, so even if they had been in the United States and had access to the screening programs that we have, uh, they wouldn't have made met age criteria for it. So there's certainly, um, you know, a, a higher burden and a different burden of breast cancer um, in places like Kenya and, and in Haiti. And it's hard to know if there is um, a genetic reason for that or if there is an environmental reason. Um, we're still trying to work that out. But, um, you know, I will say that the seeing the advanced stage of disease that I saw in Haiti was very heartbreaking because uh, women often delay coming to the doctor for various reasons that that you all certainly are um, far more aware of than I am. Um, but they're often um, quite desperate by the time they, uh, they get to us. Um, the tumors have become so large that um, the women can barely even stand up um, because of the weight of the tumor and because of the smells um, of the tumor, um, you know, literally eating women alive, um, the smells of the decaying flesh um, and the infections um, and maggots, uh, you know, women become ostracized um, by society and can't leave their house. Um, and so, then you know, it becomes tremendously painful and they don't have access to um, to pain medications and, um, and palliative measures. So it's really devastating um, to see cancer uh, that far along. And I will say um, you almost never see it get to that point in the United States. And so that was something that really um, struck me when I was in Haiti. And so at that point, the resources um, that you have to treat that cancer are very, very, very limited, obviously. Thank you for that response. You can certainly see similarities um, between the breast cancer conditions in Haiti and um, in Kenya. So the current situation in Kenya is that uh, we, they are First of all, there are limited uh, breast cancer care resources, uh, especially in rural areas compared to the urban areas. And then, like you said, women uh, also present themselves for treatment where, uh, when breast cancer has far much advanced that nothing can be done and basically they are sent home for like end-of-life care. And that's a really sad situation. And then, uh, Another thing that is very common in Kenya is that um, uh, the middle class and um, the upper class that are able to afford medical care usually travel to India and um, Western countries to receive treatment because they, uh, they can afford. But then mm -hmm. even with, when it comes to someone with breast cancer, even stage one that cannot afford, you find that uh, breast cancer advances because they 
they don't have the funds to uh, get the necessary treatment. So um, there, there are certainly so many similarities that you have mentioned between Haiti and uh, Kenya. And Haiti is like one of the poorest countries. It's uh, like in the Western Hemisphere, I as most of you know. It's, and uh, I read somewhere that it's densely populated and 59% of its population lives under the poverty line. In fact, another article said that it's 80%. So you can imagine the situation that a 20-year-old woman would find themselves in if they don't have the necessary healthcare, um, health insurance to uh, enable them to uh, get treatment for breast cancer once it's diagnosed. Uh, so thank you for that response, uh, Morgan. Um, Bernice, who's going to ask a question next, unless someone has a follow-up question before we move to the next one. Feel free to unmute and ask. Anyone with a follow-up question? Okay. Uh, good, so, good evening, guys. Good evening. Uh, I'd like to ask uh, Morgan. I've got two questions here. According to her experience in different countries, uh, what's the relationship between high fat content in a woman, uh, estrogen levels, and uh, breast cancer? That's the first question. Then the second question is, uh, how can diet, like the food the person eats, how can diet contribute to breast cancer? Those two questions. Thank you. Those are great questions. And um, they're questions that we're still um, sorting out the answers to. Um, but your instincts are very much right. We do know that there is um, a link with obesity. Um, so women um, have a, a, a tight link between um, fat cells and the production of estrogen. And so for sure, um, breast cancers that are um, triggered to grow by estrogen receptors, which is not all breast cancers, but um, a lot of uh, breast cancers. And um, unfortunately, I don't know the, the breakdown. Um, if you look at um, diagnosis of breast cancer in Kenya um, versus the United States, I, I don't know what the breakdown is in terms of what percentage are hormonally regulated by estrogen. But in the United States, it is the majority of breast cancers. And so the more um, fat cells that a woman has, the higher her um, overall estrogen production. And so that estrogen can circulate and um, stimulate the tumor to grow. Um, and so there have been some postulations about the effect of diet. And so um, in particular, soy products, um, can uh, can essentially be a source of synthetic estrogen. And so it has been um, hypothesized that that um, estrogen in um, uh, your diet from soy could also stimulate um, growth of tumors. But uh, I have to admit that this data is not robust. Um, and there have also been studies that have not showed a significant correlation with either of those things. So 
Um, it seems to make uh, biologic sense. But I think the, um, the biggest factors are certainly environmental factors that we don't fully understand. Um, and also um, genetics. And so um, the, the best things uh, that we can do to really um, to uh, increase breast cancer education um, is to focus on early detection, I think. Um, it's very difficult to figure out how to prevent breast cancer. And, uh, you know, there's not good science that really shows that if you follow a, a specific diet that you can prevent breast cancer. Um, and so early detection seems to be the key. And um, if you um, all are interested, we can talk a little bit more about this. I don't know if you're familiar with the um, Breast Health Global Initiative. But um, there are some public health um, experts and scientists um, and uh, breast surgeons and oncologists who um, have gotten together and really strategized what are the best um, strategies in various countries to reduce mortality of breast cancer. And so depending on um, each country's resource abilities, there's um, often different strategies that are recommended. And so one thing um, that may be of interest to you all, or perhaps this is something that you're very well aware of already, is um, that mammography might not be the best thing for every country in order to, um, to help uh, with early detection of breast cancer. And so, um, in the United States, for example, and in um, Canada, um, when mammography became um, popularized and became um, rampant, really, in our screening population, it um, significantly um, improved our mortality rate. And so when I alluded to the fact that um, we don't typically recommend that patients do um, monthly self-breast anymore in the states it's because there wasn't really a significant marginal benefit to patients doing that over the gold standard of mammography once that became widely available and so instead what was happening were that um, women were um, picking up uh, lumps um, or skin changes that weren't in fact clinically significant and they were going to their um, clinicians. And so um, because of the medical legal environment in the United States, clinicians felt obligated, partly from a medical legal standpoint and partly because the patient was very anxious about what they'd found, that they would order further workup. And so that cost a lot of money and cost a lot of uh, patient anxiety. Um, and just inconvenience in terms of uh, lost productivity at work to schedule these, um, these procedures and diagnostics, which could be expensive. And, um, and any test has a certain percentage of false positives. So then, um, you know, women get more worried and go for more expensive tests and more invasive procedures um, 
and it wasn't really um, increasing our detection rate or um, downstaging cancers um, upon diagnosis, but was really just leading to um, more use of medical diagnostics and interventions. So you can imagine that in a um, place that doesn't have widespread access to mammography, that um, those same conclusions aren't necessarily true. And so that in those settings, um, patients doing their own clinical breast exams um, are trem of tremendous importance in terms of finding breast cancers at an earlier stage. Um, and so I think a very important criteria that you have to think about whenever you talk about a screening strategy is what is your next step? What can you do about this? And so um, in medical ethics, we worry that um, if you're screening a population for a disease um, and you can't do anything about that diagnosis, are you more harm than good to that patient? And so if you think about mammography in, in places that have low resources, um, if you get an abnormal result with a mammogram, what are you going to do with that result? So in the United States, if you had an abnormal result on a mammogram, you might be able to get a uh, direct guided biopsy with a more precise imaging modality, such as an MRI, um, in order to, or with an ultrasound, in order to get that diagnosis. But if you find a lesion on mammography that is so small that the patient and the surgeon can't palpate it, what are you going to do with that lesion if an MRI isn't available, if an ultrasound isn't available? Now you have a patient that's worried that she might have cancer and there's absolutely nothing that she can do about it except wait until it grows big enough that um, somebody can feel it so that they can um, investigate it with a biopsy. So um, in that regard, mammography could actually do more harm than good if you don't have the subsequent resources to diagnose and treat um, after your screening. Uh, and so in places like Haiti, you know, the, the clinical or the self-breast exam um, that patients do becomes of utmost importance um, and may actually be far more helpful um, than mammography because by the time a patient can feel something, regardless of what imaging um, modalities may or may not be available to them, a decent surgeon would be able to palpate it and be able to localize a needle to it to get a diagnosis. So. Um, I'm certainly very interested to hear um, what you all think about this. Um, but uh, I think this kind of information and thinking really underscores the importance of what you're doing about getting um, education out to women about breast cancer and about performing their own breast exams so that they can present to doctors um, at uh, the earliest possible time. And I think that is the most important thing 
that Kenya can do is to disseminate that information about breast cancer, about the fact that it's treatable um, and, uh, and that there's small things that women can do in their homes to um, protect themselves. Thank you for that response, Morgan. Uh, while you're responding to that, I kind of freaked out because I'm like, if the self-exam is no longer evidence-based uh, evidence practice or the best way to detect cancer, like, are we, like, what else are we going to do? But I feel like, uh, I like the way you ended um that uh, it's still a good practice for us because we don't have, we, we have so many women that don't have health insurance that they don't even, they can't afford the, that mammogram. So it's still good that we emphasize the need for self-breast exam to encourage early detection and uh, prompt treatment. So, um, Absolutely. It's, it's very important. And I think... Um, it, it really highlights um, your expertise as an organization because you know the resources that are available to you in your community. You know the culture in your community. Um, and, you know, you know kind of the practicalities of, uh, of what you're working with. And I think it's always important to follow your gut because uh, so often people will... Um, you know, cite evidence from countries like the U.S. or the U.K. or Canada. And um, quite frankly, they don't necessarily apply to your population. And, um, you know, the, the reasoning behind um, those strategies is not necessarily applicable. And you could actually be causing more harm than good. Um, and so I think the story behind um, patient self-breast exams is um, a perfect indication of that. That uh, there's, and luckily with breast cancer in particular, um, there is a lot of literature and a, a lot of um, really great expertise and leadership from um, from doctors and public health experts in places like Kenya that have um, been able to develop more specific um, criteria and guidelines that are relevant to your culture and also the resources that you have. Um, so yes, I, I think that what you're doing and, and the experts would all agree that by teaching women how to do self-breast exams, that is one of the most important things and probably the biggest prioritization that um, the country can make in order to have a significant impact on breast cancer mortality. More so than mammogram, more so than introducing ultrasounds, um, you know, more so than, than introducing radiation. And so it's inspiring if you think about it because uh, you know, you don't need a lot of technology, you don't need a lot of money um, to teach women how to do a self-breast exam and to know that you can have um, even a bigger impact. And there, there are some studies that have modeled this and shown that 
that what you're doing, teaching self-breast exams and providing education can save more lives ultimately than things like introducing more mammograms into the country. Thank you for that response. Uh, it seems like Otieno wants to ask a follow-up question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Just also, just on hormones, uh, postmenopausal hormones, uh, it's amongst the risk factors of breast cancer. And uh, my question is, is it a virus factor? That's one. That, that, the second question is, uh, you find that the, the, the postmenopausal hormones are given in two ways, continuous and, 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 in, and in sequence. So my question is, is it uh, the continuous one, is it the one that is, is more, more of risk factor or the sequential one? And the third question is, uh, the, 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 the hormones are given in different ways, you find that the still injections and the skin touches. So from them, also which ones are of the high risk factor? Thank you. Um, I'm sorry, uh, there's a lot of static on my line and so um, I'm having some difficulty uh, understanding what your question was, but maybe um, Joy, you have a, a good line. Maybe you can repeat it for me. Unfortunately, I couldn't hear him well as well. I texted in the group chat. But, uh, Otieno, are you able to text your question if you don't mind? And then I'll, I'll read them to Megan. Morgan. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Bernice was going to ask a question. Bernice, are you ready? Hi. While we wait for Otina yes. to take yes. this question. I'm ready. Okay. So my question my question is how best can the NGOs work with communities to eradicate breast cancer? How best can the NGOs work with communities so as to eradicate Yeah and um that's a great question. And I think, to be honest, um, all of you are better equipped to answer that question than I can. Um, and so I would kind of uh, bounce back to what we were just talking about, that I think a lot of NGOs, um, you know, erroneously use a lot of data that doesn't really apply to the population and so they may embark on strategies that aren't the most relevant and that maybe aren't the most culturally appropriate. And so, um, you know, I think certainly, as we said, I think the, the data um, from experts, worldwide experts that include, you know, ministers of health and public health officials um, in countries like Kenya, 
have shown that um, the importance of education and self-breast exams. And so, you know, as we were talking about disseminating, disseminating that information is um, of vital importance. Um, and, you know, just arming with women with the knowledge that um, if you catch it early, it is treatable. And it is treatable even um, in places like Kenya, um, even for poor people that may not have the same resources to medical um, interventions. Um, but logistically, how you go about doing that, you know, you all are the experts because you know your communities um, better than any outsider. And and I think that's something that NGOs don't typically appreciate is all of the complex um, cultural issues that we don't understand if we're not living in your communities. And so I think you guys are the experts in terms of figuring out what the best um, education platform is for your population. Um, and how to teach those concepts and how to marry um, certain scientific concepts that we know of with, um, you know, with ideas that might be more um, culturally relevant to you. And, um, you know, I'm interested to get uh, your feedback on this because I know in... Um, in Haiti, for example, one thing that we um, have encountered is just the um, the real importance that women place on their breasts in terms of their relationships with their husbands. And so their fear that they're going to lose their breasts and therefore, um, you know, how that will affect their family and um, their economic reality. Um, if that has impacts on their relationship with their husband. And that has been a big factor that we've seen in Haiti of why people may delay care even when they know that there's a problem. It's because they don't have the faith that medicine can help them. Um, and in fact, think that the cure might be worse than the disease. And so I think these types of issues are things that we don't really um, understand as much in the United States. Um, and so I'm, I'm eager to, to hear from you all what kind of barriers you've encountered in your communities when educating women about breast health. Okay. Um... Morgan, do you want me to respond to that? Or I go to the next question? <laughs> but let me, I'm just going to state one of the major challenges we've experienced. Um, one is language barrier. Uh, some of these scientific concepts can be so hard to translate to our first languages. So that's one of the challenges we face. But We've, often we've uh, gotten help from uh, the educated people in the community and that's been really helpful. So illiteracy is a major hindrance to uh, breast cancer education. Uh, so Otieno posted his question 
and he's asking about uh, postmenopausal hormones. He said uh, postmenopausal hormones being a risk factor. Um, are they are they of a high risk? And then his follow-up question in relation to that is, being that menopausal hormones are being given in two ways, continuous and sequential, which way is of a higher risk? Yeah, um, you really know your science very well, I can tell. Um, and you're right. There have been a lot of studies that have shown um, that uh, hormone replacement therapy and specifically both estrogen um, and progesterone together has been shown to raise the risk of breast cancer. And so um, the Women's Health Initiative was the very large study in the United States that um, showed this. And so one of the biggest factors um, is, uh, you're right, is taking it for the, uh, a long period of time. So certainly the risk we know is the highest when you take um, hormone therapy um, with both estrogen and progesterone for over five years. And so taking um, a cyclic, uh, uh, hormone uh, therapy is certainly better to it continuous um, and we have come to understand that the the lowest dose possible for the shortest amount of time um, is what protects an, uh, you from that excess risk um, so it's a, a very personal decision for women um, I don't know as we really have robust data to say what are the most significant of the risk factors that you can change. I think certainly the more risk factors you have, um, the more you need to be concerned. So, um, you know, you already discussed some of the risk factors, you know, obesity, um, you know, a lack of exercise, uh, drinking alcohol um, and the hormones, postmenopausal hormones, are all important risk factors. And then um, the more that your body cycles through um, menstrual cycles and has the fluctuation of estrogen and progesterone, um, you know, that is excess uh, hormone exposure throughout a woman's lifetime, that is also a risk factor. So um, pregnancy and breastfeeding um, both suppress that natural cycling. So the later you are in starting your childbearing, that's a risk factor. Not breastfeeding is a risk factor. Um, and certainly never being pregnant um, is also a risk factor. There, um, are conflicting studies about um, birth control pills. We used to think that was a much stronger risk factor. Um, now studies are showing it really isn't as significant as we thought. So very similar to the postmenopausal hormones, it depends on the doses that you take and for how long. And so, um, you know, if a woman has very severe um, menopausal symptoms and she takes the lowest dose possible and she takes it for just a few months um, or a year and weans off, we really don't think that that significantly raises her um, breast cancer risk unless she already has, you know, 
a lot of other of those risk factors that we talked about. Um, and then certainly I think the ones that um, are the most pertinent that we discussed are the ones that we largely can't change. Age is quite honestly the biggest factor, age and, and genetics um, and family history. Um, and so, uh, you know, those are largely the risk factors that we can't change. And those are the ones that we know are most important, which is why we tend to, to focus on the early detection um, more so than the risk factors. But, um, but you've certainly hit on some very important ones. And I think um, it's important to discuss those and let women know that, that, that uh, you know, they have to make a personal choice for what's right for them um, in their lives. Thank you, Morgan. And then certainly, as I alluded to, there are research suggests that there are environmental causes that we don't even know. And, you know, the, as we discussed before, what is the reason that um, women of African descent seem to have a, um, a greater prevalence of breast cancer at a young age? We don't know. Is it genetics or is it an environmental exposure that um, we haven't come to appreciate yet? And we don't know. Right. There are certainly a lot that we don't already know about uh, breast cancer. And um, at least there's ongoing research into uh, some of the unknown risk factors. Um, Janet posted a question earlier. She asked if a clear or whitish discharge is, a, is something to worry about uh, when you squeeze your breast. So whitish or clear discharge from the breast tissue when you squeeze the tip, is it a concern? Yeah, we always um, do that as part of our breast exam and a clear discharge is concerning and merits workup. Similarly, um, a, a green discharge or a bloody discharge. But a milky discharge is typically um, benign in nature um, and it's typically a galactorrhea. Um, and so that can be related to changes in hormones such as prolactin. Um, so that is typically not associated um, with breast cancer. But all of the other kinds, clear discharge certainly um, merits workup. Um, and bloody discharge and green discharges are usually from, um, you know, tumors or, or conditions that are not malignant, but they can be associated with malignancy. Um, so, uh, yes, you're, you're very um, correct that nipple discharge is, is very important. In, um, in educating women. Thank you. I think I had a question to ask. I think are you there? My question is, is there anything that Malawi or Haiti is doing that you wish other countries could emulate as a good approach to breast cancer prevention and control? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so, like I said, I haven't, uh, I've only been in Malawi about three weeks now, so I haven't had much um, opportunity to see how they're doing breast cancer. But I will say that um, one thing that Haiti really did well um, was prioritizing um, treatment. And Haiti was a very poor country, um, or is a very poor country, and has no access to radiation. Um, at the time I was there, um, about six years ago, there was no radiation facility whatsoever in the country. Um, and we didn't have MRIs. Uh, we had limited access to ultrasound um, and no access to mammography. Um, but what we were able to do was to provide, there were hospitals. And so um, if you are familiar with Partners in Health, um, they had a hospital that provided free care. And so women that presented um, were able to get uh, free mastectomies. And then Partners in Health had done a really good job at securing affordable, um, high quality chemotherapy and tamoxifen from India um, that was affordable. And so, um, you know, Partners in Health really did a great job because they were a free hospital and, you know, they certainly had the resources of the United States, but being able to provide free cancer care for every woman that presented to that hospital was able to get free cancer care. Um, and so it was um, ACT chemotherapy, um, which is standard of care. So doxorubicin, uh, cyclophosphamide, um, and paclitaxel. And women would get the full course of, of chemotherapy for six cycles um, after having a mastectomy. And then if they had estrogen um, dependent cancers, then they would um, be provided with tamoxifen. And uh, that was uh, tremendous to be able to say that, um, you know, as we previously discussed, women often feel like the health, um, the health system isn't there for them and that if they presented, they would be turned away and that nothing would be able to be done. And so if you're going to be providing screening, you need to make sure that you actually can provide treatment. And so I think through Partners in Health, um, Haiti did that. And so started restoring women's confidence that this was a curable disease and that they could present earlier. And um, as more and more women had mastectomies, they realized that a mastectomy wasn't a death sentence, you know, that they could um, continue on in their families um, despite having a mastectomy. And, uh, and so that built confidence among women. And I did, in my time there, um, I started seeing women presenting earlier um, by the time I left Haiti. So it was really remarkable to see that transformation in the community. Um, and so I think that is something that other countries can emulate is that they can make a commitment that if we diagnose you, 
no matter what your um, financial means are, we will make a commitment to you that we will find a way to finance your treatment. And I think that is tremendously important um, before initiating a widespread screening program. Thank you for that uh, detailed response, Morgan. I have one more question, and then I will give opportunity opportunity for any more follow-up questions before we end our meeting. So, what should current research on breast cancer focus on? Is it prevention or treatment or both? I think you have to prevent. I think you have to um, to do both, and I think research um, specifically, I think, should try to focus on why we see these differences. Why do women of African descent get um, cancers at an earlier age? What's going on? Is there something different, either in the genetics or in the environment that? causing women to get cancers so early um because certainly you know it's it's terrible in the united states when women get um breast cancers in their 40s and 50s but um it's far more devastating in um places like haiti when young women get breast cancer in their 20s and 30s and they have children to take care of um and so when they die and and these children then, you know, are orphans or, you know, the family can't um, participate in an education for their, for the children um, once a mother has passed. And so I think understanding why that difference exists is really important. And, um, you know, as we alluded to, we there really is not a whole lot that's understood about the risk factors and particularly the risk factors that a person is in control of and can change and so understanding um the risk factors that are relevant to your population rather than just relying on data from the united states that may not be relevant so i think that um is is of utmost importance um from a research standpoint. Now, in terms of where money should be focused, I think um, that's where the tricky question is because I think um, you really have to be able to focus money on all things at the same time because I think um, the best, everything is very, I see three, three main areas, right? One is the early detection that we talked about. One is treatment. And then the other one that we didn't really touch on is um, is palliation, because you have to do something for the women that are presenting to you um, right now with terrible advanced metastatic disease. You have to be able to um, treat them um, with humanity and alleviate their pain and do whatever you can do. Um, to make them as comfortable as they can and alleviate their suffering. Um, that is just as important as, um, as preventing um, or detecting um, breast cancer early. And so, you know, it gets back to people's confidence in the healthcare system. 
And so women always have to feel like the healthcare system can do something for them. And so if that's, you know, the, the women that come in with an advanced disease, they have to feel like there was a, a reason that they came in and that they got some benefit from that. Um, and then, you know, as we said, if you have early detection, but then you can't treat the can't you can't provide treatment, then what was the point of the screening? Um, and then certainly we know that the treatment is far, far more effective if the cancer is caught early. So that's the tricky part is that you can't really pour money into one without the others because it won't work. You can't pour money into um, early detection if you can't treat the disease. Then you can't pour all this money into treatment if people are just going to come in with advanced disease because then your treatments aren't effective. So you really have to spread your money across all three of those areas to have the biggest impact. But, um, you know, I, I think if I could underscore one thing, it's just that the work that you all are doing is so vitally important because it is, you know, one of those prongs. And um, there is research and I can um, probably pass al along um, the modeling research to Joy to pass on to you. But, um, you know, showing that by expanding access to treatment and by doing early detection simply by educating and teaching self-breast exams that you really can make a very significant impact in terms of lives saved. Thank you, Morgan, for that response again. Certainly, uh, there isn't much uh, uh, effort when it comes to to palliative care um, in Kenya. I have seen very few um, end-of-life care uh, resources that are provided in Kenya. In the U.S., I saw they have uh, hospice care. I, there are very few hospice homes in Kenya, and uh, most women that are diagnosed in later stages normally are put under the care of their family members, most of them that are not experienced in end-of-life care. And it's very scary to see your loved one um, with um, all those characteristics that you guys had of like late-stage breast cancer, huge breast, um, sometimes uh, smelly and Sometimes family members have to clean it just so that they have like um, comfort and uh, quality of life when it comes to end of life. Um, so um, thank you so much for your response. Is there anyone with a follow-up question? Feel free to unmute if you have a follow-up question so that we know. Okay. I, I guess Morgan has addressed most of the questions that we had. And thank you so much, Morgan, for taking the time. Uh, the information you shared was very important. I like how you are able to relate your experience in Haiti to um, uh, the Kenyan uh, breast cancer experience, even though you haven't been here. 
uh, oh, I know you have passed by Nairobi before, but we'd love to have you in Kenya someday. We would love to work together to fight breast cancer. And thank you, Mangaza Campaign Initiative members, for the great job. You guys are doing a great job. I'm glad Morgan mentioned it to you. So just know that the work you're doing is very significant. Um, never underrate it. Uh, and continue being great members. Thank you again to our guests, Ashley Karen, uh, Janet, uh, some people have loved Otieno. There are a few other guests. I think some of them have left. But thank you so much for joining us today. Feel free to join us. We always have our meetings every last Saturday of the month. We, we will always send out the links. So please feel free to join us. Anyone else with closing remarks? I just want to say thank you again. I, I enjoyed our discussion. You guys have um, very thoughtful, um, informed questions. Um, as I said, you know, I'm not a breast cancer expert and, um, you know, some of my experiences in Haiti may not be relevant um, to your setting, but um, I am going to try and recruit some of my colleagues that are breast cancer experts, that are um, breast surgeons and um, breast oncologists who do treat breast cancer on a regular basis. And um, hopefully I can recruit one of them to, um, to come talk uh, with you guys as well. But um, thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed um, being able to speak with you all. Thank you again, Morgan. We will appreciate uh, your effort in sending out more, sending more people to us to talk to us about our breast cancer. We will certainly love to talk to more experts so that we understand uh, the best ways to reach out to women out there on uh, breast cancer uh, prevention and control. So thank you, guys. Thank you, Morgan. You have a great night in Malawi. And we'd love to have you again some other time. So, yes, and if you ever talk about cervical cancer, that's uh, something that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so um, we can always chat about that um, on another evening if you'd like. Yes, we'll be talking about cervical cancer in the next, uh, perhaps in our next meeting or the month or in December. So. You are welcome to join us. Thank you again for offering to do that. All right, guys. Thank you again for being here. Um, you have a great night. If you have any questions that you would like me to ask Morgan, feel free to send them to me or any other member, and I will make sure they're forwarded to Morgan. Um, otherwise, guys, have a great night. Thank you again, and see you next time. Good night. Good night. Hi, thank you.